Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to worship at the altar of music and comedy. The giddiness and the harmony of a well-crafted comedy song brings great joy in abundance. Join the tinkling talents of David Thames and me, Phil Nichol. Sit back, turn it up, and enjoy. Songs in the key of love. Songs in the key of love. Songs in the key of love. <laughs> it's uh, episode five of series two. My name is Phil Nichol. And I'm David Timms. And you're listening to Songs in the Key of Laugh. Because, well, you, of course you know, you know you are, because you just heard the intro. The jingle. Yeah, there's a jingle there. Yeah. <laughs> How are you, Phil? How are you doing this week? I'm, I'm great. Thanks, David. How are you? I'm so excited. <laughs> you don't sound like a new father at all. No, no. Do you know what? I'm no. I'm really I'm really excited. I'm excited for many reasons. Oh, well it is. I mean, we had do have one of our best interviews ever. Well, we, he's 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 wonderful, isn't he? Yeah, he absolutely is. Yeah. On the show today, guys, we're going to be discussing. Well, I mean, we've we've looked at modern comedy songs like we've interviewed the Mid- the Midnight Beast, Tim Minchin. Yep. Um, you know, we're hope, looking, hoping to get people like the Lonely Island and Bill Bailey. At that would be point. wonderful. Um, but if you go back, musical comedy goes. I mean, back to the ancient Greeks. Back Chaucer. I mean, Geoffrey Chaucer. Is that when you were born? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, David. Uh, <laughs> I wish I knew how to tell you to fuck off in Greek. <laughs> So we're going to be looking into the modern state of the art, but also looking back at why parody and song was used as a form in the first place, like, you know, going way back in time. And maybe have a little look around at some stuff, some maybe Chaucer songs and things like that. Uh, And then later on the show, we're going to be going to our comedy song contest. And we're also going to be uh, doing our musical that we've been writing. Very exciting. Yeah, and we were interviewing this week, today... Today, this week. week. Well, that's both. You can have both. You can have you can have whichever one you like. Yeah, we're going to be talking to one of the one of the senior musical comedians in the country today, Mr. Earl Oaken. Hello. Hi, is that Earl Oaken? As far as I know. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Earl. Yeah, I think if you give yourself a little squeeze, Earl, and let us know. Actually, look at your knees. And do they look? I like... will. Yeah, they, I recognize them. They're, you recognize them? Yeah, but are they yours though? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> yeah, you. I definitely. No, I definitely. They're definitely mine. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, and hi, hi Earl. Side, which is the, like, where I like it. <laughs> Philip, earlier on, yes. we were having a conversation we were. about uh, how far back this whole musical comedy thing goes. Yes. And you were telling me about the ancient Greeks. Now, I right. should know more about this because yes. I did I did my drama A-level and you're meant to study Ooh. it, but I just didn't like, really listen at this right. point. You're too busy tinkling on the piano. I was indeed <laughs> tinkling. All right. um, but yeah, so you told me that it went as far back as ancient Greeks. As and far- you also told me something really interesting yeah. was that people used to run around with their penises out. <laughs> Is that right? Well, people have always run around with their penises out, David. <laughs> I mean, you're sitting here naked in front of me. I think. It's just 
the thing that you do. No, the 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 Greek, the ancient Greeks. Um, uh, Aristophanes is the one that I really know more about because I studied and, and and performed in a show called the Lysistrata. Then they used to sing phallic songs in the choruses, the Greek choruses. And the phallic songs were like I, similar to like a dithambric or gnomic poetry, uh, which were like, po- like these epic poems that would be read at festivals and fertility rituals and all that stuff. Um, Aristotle suggested that the phallic songs is what developed into the earliest forms of comedy. And the Lysistrata was one of Aristophanes' most famous plays. And it was a play about uh, women not, giving their men sex not having sex with the men like it's it's actually an account of a true story about the Peloponnesian war and where Lysistrata convinces the women of Greece to not have sex with their husbands until they negotiate peace which seems like a really heavy duty subject but when we did the play and when I've seen the play before all the men in it tend to wear these big cod pieces with great big boners in them <laughs> and the chorus all come out and sing with great big boners so, I mean, the, 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 this has been going, this type of thing has been going on for a long time. And scatological, funny, and they're called phallic songs. <laughs> so lyrics are Greek, right? Lyrics, it's the, from the Greek lyre. And then I think in, in Rome, it became lyric Rome in Latin. But that, but that's the idea is they would play an instrument and they would speak a poem over it. or the And the choruses, when, that's where the word chorus comes from, of course, is from the ancient Greeks. So the, a large, the chorus would be a group of people in the background who would sing uh, the same refrain over and over. And what the phallic songs is, they kind of turned it on end. And Aristophanes and Sophocles and the comic writers used it to comic effect. That's amazing. Yeah. So I've, be, I've never basically, thought... they take a really serious subject like the Peloponnesian War, make it funny, and get their, get their bits out. so but because scatological humor is it's kind of the kind of really common in musical comedy isn't it so of course it's so so this is this is about two and a half thousand years ago roughly is that right yeah i think it's like 900 bc maybe something like that no okay so even wow so that i mean that that predates that predates Christianity, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, Christianity, Christianity yeah. yeah. Well, well, yeah. Well, well, well. <laughs> we were laughing at our dicks way before <laughs> Jesus came along. <laughs> I don't remember Jesus laughing at his penis. <laughs> I'm sure he did. Sure I wonder did. if he ever got it out and went, hey guys, look at that. <laughs> oh, you can't say that. He did, just did. You, you just uh, happy Easter, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> So then moving into the sort of to modern English, well, modern English, Chaucer would be the first example of uh, English literature, English theatre. And it was all written in rhyming couplets. It's like poems. Yeah. But in the in the Merchant's Tale, there's a song. I think there's a few songs in Chaucer. But what makes what what's a song? You're the musician. What what makes a song a song? Uh, Well, I guess I guess actually, if you look look back, then like all pieces of music have got some sort of a structure to them so it, it uh if it's a sonata it'll have you know your a section your b section and and so on and so forth uh just like a, a modern song would have your introduction your verse your chorus and i think that that's probably having some sort of a structure to something makes it into a song so if it was if it was a melody structure around some rhyming couplets i think that's what it would make it a song but i think even just by giving something a melody doesn't that make it a song on its own you- 
I imagine it's about harmony and me- melody. Yeah, I don't even think that you necessarily need need harmony to go along with the melody. And so, what, what makes it a comic song? You just you get your knob out. <laughs> <laughs> so you just Swing love that. <laughs> Please, this can... is supposed to be, we're try- trying to take this seriously here I, today. I was taking it seriously. At the beginning of today, I said, can we please take today's <laughs> episode seriously? And every time I mention Willie's, you get a little giggle on. So what was that, Phil? Well, that's Shakespeare, isn't it? That's uh, that was a lover and his lass, and I think it sounds quaint, but actually it's a bit, a bit, a bit naughty. It's ding a ding a ding. Yeah, when when birds do sing, hey ding a ding ding, sweet lovers in the spring. I mean, I think we know what they're talking about. Between the acres of rye, with a hey and a ho and a hey nanny no. Those pretty country folk would lie in springtime, the only pretty ring time, when birds do sing, hey, ding, 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 sweet lovers in the spring. You decided to write some music for Chaucer. Yeah, I mean, he did He did do it himself, but we're going to do it uh, more so. We've taken this one, two rhyming couplets. Yep. I've written my bit. And then David's going to play his. Mine okay. Goes By this, the sheets were spread, the bride undressed. The room was sprinkled, and the bed was blessed. What next ensued beseems me not to say to son. He labored until the dawning day. He got busy with it. He got busy with it. He got busy, 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 busy with it. <laughs> it doesn't go. He got busy with it. That's not Chaucer. It's my Chaucer. My body, um, my Chaucer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do a um. I'm going to do it as sexy as I can by using the uh, the chords and the lick of the uh, most sexy song of all time. By the sheets was spread, the bride undressed, the room was sprinkled, and the bed was blessed. What next ensued beseems me not to say Tis sung he labored till that day let's get it on Let's get busy with it let's get it on Woo Sexy sexy Chaucer Oh yeah Time now for our latest submission in the song contest. It's a competition. The, the yeah, songs in the key of laugh comedy song competition. competition um, which, if you would like, if you would like to join in, um, please do send your submissions into songs 
in the key of laugh at gmail.com and we will have a listen and you may get featured this week's uh, submission is from masters of the scene who you may have remembered from last season uh they've got a new singer and they've got new songs and this is white, white pube favorite part of the show oh, phil yeah. every part's my favorite um we're going to continue writing our musical improvising our musical um so where are we up to well we've got phil if you've been listening to the series uh our improv musical takes us to and i a monsoon washes uh, two characters called phil and david no relation no uh onto a desert island uh meanwhile back in the mainland uh david's fiance 
Yeah, fiance is um, she's pretty sad, and her dad, um, evil dad, evil dad, trying to um, get convince her to marry Phil. Yeah, yeah. So back, back on the island, um, uh, Phil has bitten he, off he's, David's he's, leg. I don't know he's bitten it off, but he's certainly oh, he's, chopped it off. He's, and he's he's eating it. Yeah, yeah. So David's having to hop around, um, and they've just um, in the distance spotted a ghost ship. Yep. Yeah. So um, oh. right. So uh, we've well, got we've got the dictionary. We've got the dictionary. Here it is. You can hear it. I open the dictionary, I put my finger down, and we pick a word, and that's right. what the song What's will the be word? About. Wait a minute. Didn't bring his glasses. Yeah, it just says something. Something. <laughs> well. That's a bit general. So, yeah, I mean, we could definitely use oh, that word. Something. 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 Okay, cool. Um, right, so we've just seen a ghost ship. So let's well, see what happens. Do we, do we go back to the mainland? Uh, well, would you like to go back to the mainland? I don't know. I'd like to know what's happening in that story. Okay, well let's uh, let's let's go back to the mainland then, shall we? Here we go. Something has to happen. Something has to come. Something is in my face And something is in this bun Something for lunch Something for tea Something's gonna happen to you Something's gonna happen to me Cause this is the something part You gotta give your heart to something Something's gotta come, something's gotta be done Something, something, something Something was just a dream, something came to me Something has to be done, but I can't see something for real Something, something, something <laughs> Something, something, something Oh, I wish I had something I wish I was something I want to be something Cause something has to happen To something and someone Somehow, some way Something is the only thing That can save us from this part of the musical Something, <laughs> something I need something to come my way When is something gone? Something's gonna come to me Something's gonna save us all from this Something tragedy Something 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 Do you like competitions? I like competitions. If you like competitions, then please join our Songs in the Key of Laugh comedy song competition and send in your submission for the competition to songsinthekeyoflove at gmail.com. That's songsinthekeyoflove at gmail.com. Join our competition. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. 
Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's my other favorite part of the show, Phil. <laughs> it's our interview segment. And this week we have an absolute legend. Yeah, yeah, he is a legend. Yeah. And if you've not heard of him before, uh, he's just phenomenal. We could have spoken to him for hours. He's been there, done that kind of guy. He is Earl Oaken. Oaken. The guest on today's it's show guest. is someone you might know. You and if you don't, that's your own fault. You'll know them soon Oh my God! Hi, Earl Oaken. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> um, what can what what has Earl Oaken not done? That's I think more important uh, to what he has done because we could just list and all the things that he has done on all the things you've nearly done. You've nearly done a lot of things as well. Yes, uh, one or two things I should have done, and I would be famous. But I've done everything except things to make me rich and famous, basically. Ah, <laughs> but there's more to being rich than the richness of the spirit, Earl. Uh, and I don't drink much. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, it's Earl, um, we I, I had the great pleasure of of reading about your life um, o- over the last couple of weeks, and I mean, you have worked with everybody. I mean, the, the the list is the list is amazing. You've worked, worked with uh, Georgie Fame. You've worked with uh, Paul McCartney. You worked with Van Morrison. I'm, I mean, are, are there any of those um, particular people that really, really stick out as as like your favourites that you've worked with? Of those, of those three, Paul was the best by a long chalk. Um, I wasn't madly uh, impressed with. Um, with Van Morrison, I have to say. I, I did a tour with him, and at the end of the tour, I could only really remember two of the songs. Whereas when you worked with Paul McCartney, um, by the time I worked with him, it was the very last tour that Wings ever did. And by that time, having proved that he could do things on his own, he was then bringing back some Beatles songs into the lineup he did yesterday and various other songs. And so, it was, you know, when you go to most rock tours, they have their hit at the end and everybody gets excited. With Paul McCartney, every song was a hit. It just like non-stop. Mm. Um, and he was a very nice, relaxed chap to sort of tour with. In fact, one of the things he, he used to do was to have the same crew working with him all the time because the last thing he wanted was for him to walk on. And remember, this is only 10 years after the Beatles. So the last thing he wanted was people to 
see him and go, oh my God, it's Paul McCartney. What he wanted was his crew to go, oh, hello, Paul, um, one minute, I'm busy. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he wanted. And because, you know, you, you can imagine when you, well, I guess both one can imagine what it's like to be that famous where you cause a major riot every time you appear. And he wanted people who didn't do that. Um, so... But is that something that Earl Oaken would like? Would you like to drive up in your in your Morris Minor and have people go absolutely mental? I drive a Morris Minor. <laughs> well, I don't know. I was going to put you. What? What's a, you, a, you this, a Rover ninety five, my dear. A Rover ninety five. It was. A, it's the most lovely car. The thing that struck me about the car is the back doors opened the other way. Yes. So you, because it gives you easier access. Easier access. Mm. Okay. <laughs> um, I did. I did also um, notice as I was uh, doing some research that um, that during the time when you were um, working with Wings, that you were mm-hmm. just you just become a deputy head teacher at the same time. How? I mean, how does that work? How can you balance? No, 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 no. That's when I stopped being a deputy head. Ah, um, that makes much on, more sense. I was sense. on playground duty on the Tuesday. I got a phone call from my friend, who I'm still friends with, Wings drummer, um, Mr. Holly. And uh, he said, it was very funny, actually. Uh, I mean, i just come back off playground duty and it was all wet and horrible and manky. And, uh, and he said, oh, oh, look, we're going on tour on Friday. Could you come with us, you see? So, and he was in more than one band because he did different sort of music. So I said, oh, you know, which, which band is it? So he said, oh, Wings. And she said, look, we open on Friday. Can you make it? So I sort of went, uh, um, uh, yeah. He said, okay, look, see you Friday at so-and-so, whichever venue it was. Uh, at eight o'clock it is, so, you know, be there a bit earlier for a sound check. See you then. Ciao. And he rang off. So now it's Tuesday. I had to resign, <coughs> quit my job, and I went from being a sort of pillar of society to a threat to society within two days. <laughs> In those days, it was one of the few times I didn't have the Rover 95. I had a Rover 3 litre. I went off with my then manager, uh, John Jones, and uh, we hit the road and that was it. Going back further back in your life, when did you first start playing the guitar? Have you, have you, are you a trained did you, no. You're self-taught a musician. I mean, you play amazing yes, and, I, and I play better piano than I play guitar. But really? there was yeah. one of each around the house when I was five, six, seven. Mm. My father played a few chords on the guitar. He also, during the war, uh, when he was in the RAF, was one of those people who could do everything. His job was teaching people how to mend aeroplanes. But during the war, when he wasn't teaching people to mend aeroplanes, he was running variety shows and uh, he used to write comedy. He was in his 20s then and out of his show came two 60s comedians who were called Harry Worth and Dick Emery. Wow, Dick Emery. Wow. Amazing. So um, that's why that was my first comedy influence of my father and then listening on the radio and we had maybe the best radio comedy there's ever been in the form of something called The Goon Show. Oh, right, of course. And, and then after that, there was something called Beyond Our Ken, which people seem to have forgotten. Yeah, there was The Goon Show, and there was, what's the other, there was one, Q, a Q, 
Is that was that a? Was oh, that was much later. That was a TV series. Oh, a TV uh, series. Much later was it? Okay. No, yeah, that that was after, long after the Goons. Um, was your father? Can I ask you? Was your father a songwriter? Was he? Is that? No, what, no, no, he was. Uh, he. I see. I've got two influences. Although my great uncle wasn't a songwriter himself, he was a semi-professional singer of Schubert Lieder. So uh, from the age of five, I was heavily into grand opera and started collecting 78s, mm. which is why I now have 10,000 of them. Oh, and, and my father would tell me about, he, he was just old enough to have heard the back end of musical. So I used to listen to records of great cluster of comedians like Gus Elan, if you haven't seen him go online, he's on YouTube and a wonderful lady called Lily Morris, who was my father's favorite. And well, I didn't know who she was, obviously, um, but as soon as I saw her clips on YouTube, I thought, ah, oh, now I understand why my father was so enamored of her. She was absolutely fantastic. Yeah. There's a track um, that you see her doing live on stage called The Old Apple Tree, and during which she gets drunk in three verses. It's just a tour de force <laughs> performance. Wonderful. And uh, he used to wait till she was at the top of the bill and he'd save up and get his sixpence and then go to the local musical to see her. And his other hero was a monologuist called Billy Bennett. Yeah. Who was another early person. He was a World War One hero, got all sorts of medals, but he then became this ridiculous um, monologuist. He'd make up all sorts of nonsense because they were working under great handicap. The BBC had such, uh, was so, uh, you know, the censorship was ridiculous. So you couldn't say anything. So the only thing you could do was to be ridiculous. And he, he got away with murder because half the time you didn't know what it meant. And uh, my father used to like his monologues and used to perform them. So that's, and then you know, over the breakfast table, there were pun competitions. We'd start on some subject and it would be a pun competition. Who could make up the worst puns? I've never quite recovered from that, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with a good pun. When did you, when do you think you remember writing your first, um, well, your first normal song? I was going to say comedy song. Actually, oh, when do you remember writing well, your first song? I would have been, this would have been my attempt to write a classical song. So I would have been, what, 17? And it was... Um, there's a very famous tune that Americans know better than us called Cantique de Noël. And I think in England, in, in, uh, in English, the, the words are Oh Holy Night. Right. And I really love this tune because I had a recording of it by Caruso, which of course is the best version of it in French. <clears throat> and I thought I'd write a song in that style, which actually is not bad actually, considering it's my first song. And by this time, when I was 17, let's see, it was the early 60s, and of course it was the time of the, you know, the beginning of the Britain being the centre of the world in terms of pop music, and I heard these people called the Beatles and the various other groups and thought, God, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I started doing that, and I didn't used to write words at that time. That came a little bit later. But the songs, yeah, and... Um, I wrote a few which 
reading that you um were offered a record deal um at a very young age but wanted to finish your degree no it wasn't quite like that okay i met somebody i used to go to a a jewish youth club in maidavale and the father of one of the girls there heard me sing and thought oh he's good and uh, he had been in the army with a certain dick james by now, Dick James was the publisher for the Beatles. Mm. And because he knew him, he took me in. And I had, by this time, I was at university. So we're talking 1965, 66, somewhere around there. And I'd been listening to some Beethoven quartets. And I thought to myself, I wonder if I could write a pop song that involved a string quartet. And I wrote a song called I Can't Face the Animals. And I took it along, and unusually, well, certainly for today, there was a piano in a music publisher's office. How about that for a novelty? Yeah. Um, and I played, and Dick, who was, you know, a very, very important man by this time, he, by the way, was the person you hear singing on that series called Robin Hood. Oh. Robin Hood, Robin, Robin Hood, Hood, riding through the, the glen. Yeah. And that was him singing, because he'd been a singer for years, and had decided he got to the stage of his life when he perhaps thought he couldn't be a professional singer anymore, but he wanted to stay in the business. So he had ears, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I played him this song at the piano, and he turned a sort of pale green colour as if he'd seen a ghost. And he said, come in the other room, and I want you to hear the Beatles' next single, and you played me Eleanor Rigby. Right. Wow. And it, it was so much like my song. I mean, the tune was different, but the concept with a jump, 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 you know, with the strings was exactly the same. So that's when he took me on. And to cut a long story short, I ended up making a single in 67, a few months after Sergeant Pepper had been done. It was the same studio, Studio 2, Abbey Road. And it was one of the first tracks ever to be played on Radio 1. Yeah. It's called Yellow Petals. It's somewhere on YouTube. Everything's on YouTube. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, two years later, I managed to make a second record, but for a different label, and that's called Stop and You'll Become Aware. But those are my only pop singles. The trouble was the way they operated in those days. I mean, they were making a lot of money, the record di- record labels. Yeah. And what they would do is that they would release, I don't know, 15 singles every week. And they knew that one or two of them would catch on. And they didn't really do any PR work on them. So, you know, either you were the lucky one or you weren't. And, of course, yeah. I wasn't. I wasn't very happy with it either because... I did not write the songs in that style. The guy who did it later became known as Hurricane Smith, and he was also the engineer for another group uh, who got famous, and he wanted to do a, a psychedelic version of my songs. Not what I had in mind, but nobody 
Well, I was only, I only was only the singer and the writer, but I was <laughs> 20 years old, so they didn't really care. Yeah. Um, I mean, now I listen to it now, and it's not that bad. But the, what they, the B side was going to be the A side. That was that song I'd written for the string quartet, and I had a 28-piece screaming lunatic orchestra. So I, I wasn't going to have that as the A side because it wasn't the way the song should be. Mm. So we swapped sides, and it was yellow petals. What happened then was. Uh, I was by then at university and I wanted to get my degree. Heaven knows why, because I don't know what the degree in philosophy has done for me for the last <laughs> 50 years. I just had pointless arguments with people who don't understand what I'm saying. Um, but because I wasn't there, a year later, Dick decided to start his own label called DJM. And we got on like a house on fire. He was a really lovely man. But he had another writer with him who he, with whom he didn't get on but he's promised you know he was a man of his word and he said he'd stick with somebody and they were available I wasn't I was you know at University of Kent at Canterbury so because I wasn't available he got all the work done on him his name was Reg Dwight wow um, and um Apparently, he did quite well. Yeah, <laughs> I think he's done okay for himself. I yeah, think he's still doing and, okay and right I know now. I write better songs than he does, but there you go. Yeah. <laughs> One of my fondest memories of you, Earl. Well, I, I mean, I've fond memories of watching you perform in Edinburgh at the Edinburgh Festival. Um, we were discussing how you were on in the same venue with uh, a very uh, well-known Canadian comedian called Harland Williams. But that, but one, I'll come back to that in a sec. I was flying to Brazil uh, to do a travel show for Channel 5 and I was going to... Oh, why it, didn't I get that? That's I'm, not right. I was going to, I was going to be uh, there because I'm better connected. Well, I was going, we were going to, we were go, I was going to go and interview Bibel Gilberto. Oh, the, amazing. One of the you, you, you spoke to Charles Gilberto. Yes, I spoke to Bibel, Bibel and, and so, uh, but on the flight on the way there, as I was trying to get myself in the groove, I put on the Bossa Nova channel um, and who pops up on the Bossa Nova channel, but the lovely Earl Oakley. Well, I never even knew that my tracks got on there. I don't know what that could have been. It, it was, I, I'm not sure what it was. Did you release an album of Bossa Nova? Yeah, when, when, when did you go to Brazil? Well, that would have been about 15, t- uh, 20 years ago now. Oh, yeah, that would, yeah, would be a, a, that's a um, CD called uh, Bossa Britannica. Bossa Britannica, that's the one. And it, and what what exactly, so I remember listening to it thinking, uh, I've only, I didn't know that that's something you had done. And I didn't really not, I know, I uh, had never really looked into your the background that we're discussing now. Oh, I just knew you as a as a, a comic singer, or I'm not, I'm not even how you sure you would describe yourself, but um, uh, would you describe yourself as a musical comedian, a comic singer, or a amusing songwriter? Well, I'll tell you, I'm, basically a singer first of all first and foremost and because i was a singer i then messed about with guitar and piano so i could accompany myself yeah so that i was you know self-contained and didn't have to keep finding people and then i in throughout the 70s because i never worked with a band uh where did people who didn't have a band perform in london this is 10 years before the comedy circuit started. Yeah. And it's really where alternative comedy started. Um, people don't often mention this fact. <clears throat> this is the folk club circuit. Yeah. And it was very good because you never got heckled. It was not, a, you know, if you didn't like something, you just didn't clap very much. 
but you certainly didn't heckle. Yeah. And, uh, and it enabled you to learn your stage skills in a sort of safe environment, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And you had to, if you, what you would do is you'd turn up at a folk club, you'd do your two songs as a floor singer, and if you went well, you'd then go to the organizer and say, um, you know, any chance of a gig. And if you got a gig, which usually paid, remember this is a long time ago, which usually paid about 10 quid, Mm-hmm. Um, and remember, I had a day job. I was a schoolmaster already. And if you uh, did your gig, what you had to do was you had to have two half-hour sets. And I soon discovered that if you could make people laugh a bit in between your perhaps straight songs, they were more entertained. So I've always regarded the comedy as rather like a piece of cheese at a wine tasting. Right. It sort of refreshes the palate for the next song. Right. Whereas there were people who just sang song, 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 and you gradually fell asleep. Right. Right. This was a sort of way of making sure the audience were really, you know, with you. Right. So that's how it sort of started. And I wasn't the only one because I suppose the most successful of, of us, um, who was a banjo player, yeah. And we used to perform at a place called the Troubadour in what I call my court, or most people call Earl's Court. Um, and his name was Billy Connolly. Billy Connolly, yeah. Mm. And he was a banjo player. And then he would be funny in between songs, and as you know, gradually the patter took over and the, and the sort of banjo was put away. Yeah. But there, there was more than there was, there was Mick Elliott from the Northeast. There were Jasper Carrot was another one. Mm. There were quite a few people who did songs and then with a chat in between. And then occasionally I wrote wrong words to songs. Um, in, in these uh, sort of Soviet Union times, I remember I rewrote it's a long way to Tipperary, it's a long way to East Siberia, mm. <laughs> it's a long way to walk, I remember there was one there. And then we did um, one of the Beatles songs, which I rewrote, I think I'm gonna be sick all over the floor, that was one of them. <laughs> and, uh, and we just did things like that, you know, and, yeah. and that's, it was just, so you do a funny one and then a straight one and then a really, you know, dramatic one and that's the way you put together a set. Yeah. So by the time the 70s ended, I, I was gradually doing very well and I was started doing support tours. The first person I went on tour with was somebody who's still my friend called Ralph McTell. The Streets, Streets of London. London. Yes, yes. Yeah. So he was the first one. Then because of him... I got involved with a group called Fairport Convention. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and it was through somebody who sold their merchandise that I met Steve Holly. He saw me at the Cambridge Folk Festival in 79, uh, and I had to go through and it's sort of an awkward moment when I could easily have lost the audience because they thought that, you know, could have thought that I was being big-headed and was you know, doing things I shouldn't have done, but I managed to get through it. And I also ended up having to sing with somebody called Ry Cooder. Do you know Ry oh, Cooder? Ry Cooder, yeah. He, he, he did the uh, Bonavista Social Club. I, that's right. Oh, really? And um, yeah. I don't think he quite got it when I said 
quite cool, but don't I know your brother Barry? <laughs> I, don't, don't think, I don't think he got it. Um, anyway, um, so he saw me in front of 25,000 people, Steve. So when that Christmas they were looking for somebody to open for Wings, they tried various ideas, you know, a circus act, um, people on stilts, jugglers, everything, and nobody went, nah, that's not going to work. And then Steve said, I know somebody who could do it. And... Uh, that's how I got the tour. That, so, so that's, and I, of course, I'd done in the meantime through somebody else called John Altman. He he was involved with this tour. He was like the uh, musical director of this tour with Van Morrison, and they'd had uh, a wonderful Scottish Jewish man who wrote strange songs. Ivor Cutler, and and he was a friend of my father's. Funnily enough. He used to write strange songs like "Here's the Stutter, it goes Stutter in the whole day through, things like that. Um, and he was opening for Van, but he couldn't do the whole tour, so I did the second half. So that's how I got that. Mm. And then later in the year, it was Paul McCartney and Wings, right? That was yeah. about November 79. So that's really what happened in the 70s. It was really through folk clubs. I just wanted to ask you about the uh, the bossa nova. You're, you're renowned in the world of bossa nova, are you? Well, much to my amazement, there's a, there's a friend of mine who uh, sadly died last year. He was in his 80s, and he was like the top critic. And I've actually got a video of him saying that <clears throat> I was the nearest to George Alberto in the world. Wow. wow. And you have to do George Alberto because literally he invented Bossa Nova. Mm-hmm. I don't know any other genre invented by one man, but yeah. in his case, he was a strange man. He was a recluse and difficult to get hold of and so forth. Yeah. I did meet Jobim once, but it all started, you see, while other people were going mad about, I don't know, the Rolling Stones and the Who and all the 60s groups, I had discovered jazz. Yeah. And there were a series of cheap LPs being put out, which were reissues of pre-war 78s. And I bought all of these. I still got them. Red Nichols, uh, no relation, apparently. Um, <laughs> Louis Armstrong. Mm. Duke Ellington was my big one. Yeah. 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 And... As for singers, um, I actually went, to, I used to go to see Duke Ellington concerts and uh, one amazing show at what used to be called the Odeon Hammersmith, is now the Apollo. I saw the Duke Ellington Orchestra with a very good support act called Ella Fitzgerald. Wow. Um, but my favorite singer of all, and the only one of all those great American singers who could really do it properly in terms of bossa nova was Peggy Lee. Yeah. <clears throat> and I had bought an LP when she sang Quiet Nights of Quiet Stars, Quiet Calls on My Guitar, and I fell in love with this song, not really knowing what it was. And then I met somebody who played scrunchy chords on a guitar, which I was really interested in. I thought, well, I wish I could play those chords, which of course I can now. And uh, then I started trying to write songs in that genre. And my first session with Dick James included my very first 
bossa nova attempt, which was called Adriana. And Dick used to, he was way ahead of the game. He had his own little recording studio. And when he signed a song, he would hire eight musicians, have an arrangement sorted, and you'd do a demo of these songs, which he'd then send out to people. And of course, when you had the Beatles publisher sending you a song, you actually listened to it. So in the end, not that one, but I had others covered by Helen Shapiro, Georgie Fame, and uh, Cilla Black. Cilla Black? Wow. Yeah. That, oh, I mean, I, Cilla Black's voice was something something special, and to have her sing one of your songs... It was then, it went off later. Um, <laughs> again, it's all on YouTube. There's one called Abyssinian Secret, and the other one was called Trees and Loneliness. Again, um, Abyssinian Secret, I didn't write the words for that one, I just wrote the song. But I think I started writing the words of, of Trees and Loneliness, I think some of those words are mine. I used to write by that time with somebody called Simon Novadis, and she used to write words. Um, and that was, yeah, and that was that. Whereas the one that was recorded by Helen Shapiro, Stop and You'll Become Aware, I think I wrote the words for that one. Years later, it didn't, none, none of these sold very much for various reasons. Um, the Sir Blacks came out on an EP when EPs weren't beginning to sell anymore. The Georgie Fame came out on an LP, which was like end of contract LP and wasn't being pushed, whereas his new contract was getting all the PR. All that sort of thing was happening. Um, but um, years later, somebody told me that the track that I'd written called Stop and You'll Become Aware had become a big thing in something called Northern Soul, about yeah. which I knew absolutely nothing. So he said, no, no, it's so, they love that track. So I went online to some Northern Soul site, and I loved this because there was a sort of expert, I love experts, and <laughs> they had this track there, and this is what he said. He said, this iconic track recorded by Helen Shapiro was written by Earl Oakin, yes, quite so, and continued... An obscure black songwriter from Detroit, heavily influenced by Tamla Motown. I, I just love that. I, yeah, there was sure. a thing where you could write a comment, and, and I said, well, I'm Earl Oakin, I'm actually Jewish, I live in London, I had no thought of Tamla Motown when I wrote that song. But otherwise, you've got it completely right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess you are. And he didn't care, he got very excited. Are you really Earl Oakin? So, yeah, you are a bit Motown, though. You know so I mean? that was the that was the end of my pop career, really. I mean, I, I suppose that recording by Georgie Fame in '71 was the last one. There was another track recorded. I can't remember what's the name of the band. It was something in the Mindbenders. I've forgotten the name of the guy who was the leader of it. But they supposed to have done one of my. But anyway, none of them were successful. So, so you're. When you write a song, you've said that you write, you write the music first. So you'll write your 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 chord sequence, your melody, and then the words will follow. Is that how you've is that how you've always done it? Yes. Yes. Because I don't really care about words very much. I mean, <laughs> I, I, it's different when you're writing a comedy song because then the words matter, and usually the music doesn't really. It could be in the old tune because what you're trying to do is get people to laugh. Right. Um, so. With comedy songs, the trick is to think of some basic idea. 
and then the words are really different ways of addressing the same idea. So if it's a song about bad food, then there could be various verses about various sorts of food that make you feel sick, for instance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, another idea I had, which I've got, I must learn it again, it's because, you know, you've got, I've got rusty after two years of doing nothing. <laughs> it was a song I wrote because every now and then on the jazz circuit, some gorgeous young lady will come up to you and you think, hello, my, my luck has changed. And then she'll say those terrible words, hello, I'm an actress and I want to sing jazz. And she's, <laughs> and she's been to drama school where her teachers told us all about the lyrics. I'm going, no, it's not all about the lyrics, it's all about the music. And she's got some poor young man who's a jazz pianist to accompany her. And would I come to her gig? And she's usually dreadful. And then she says, what do you think and what do you say? So my, the song was somebody giving their opinion to one of these women, and it's called Fabulous, <laughs> and, and it's got lines in it, and uh, you're absolutely fabulous. I just loved your hair, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> the scene was awful. And what do you say? So that's another theme, but, you know, it's just you have to get the basic idea, and then once you've got the idea, then all you've got to do is to think of words that rhyme, and you've got it, really. That's the way I do that. Yeah. But usually, when I write a song, I'm sitting at the piano, or usually at the piano, sometimes a guitar, and as I'm singing da-di-da-di-da, I'll just sing an odd, completely meaningless word that comes into my head. On one occasion, I wrote a song, and I kept singing the word Africa. Mm. And at that time, I'd never been to Africa, knew nothing about it, but somehow that was going to be the name of the song. Mm -hmm. And I had to think of a word, a set of words that fitted that title. But at least it gave you, it meant you didn't start off with a blank sheet. And I had the song finished, so I knew how the song went. And then I all it do was write lyrics. Yeah. Is that how you developed the lyrics for Mango? No. <laughs> well, that was done in a different way. Um, I had been to see my favorite singer, and her name was Peggy Lee. Mm. And she was at the London Palladium. This is in the late 70s, I seem to remember. And um, she sang one of her big hits, which was Fever. Yeah. Never know much I love you. And I thought, I wonder if I can write a song in that style. And it was intended for some gorgeous young lady to sing to be all sexy with it right and that was mango <laughs> right. and i never intended to sing it myself and then one day we were doing i was some sort of amateur variety show or something and i had this girl singing it and she looked gorgeous but she couldn't be sexy she just didn't have you know i wanted it to be like may west you know and yeah. do all that and she couldn't do it so i picked up the guitar and demonstrated to her what she should be doing and the entire room fell about laughing. <laughs> and something went ding in my head, and I thought, oh, I can sing this song. Yeah. Um, because, you know, for a bloke to go on stage and say, hello, I'm sexy, just people go, <laughs> <laughs> um, But by sending it all up, you can actually, and that, and that, as you know, has become my onstage, you know, persona ever since. But that's how it started. It started 
So for for the the few listeners that may be young, may not have uh, seen you or or heard of you or know your style, you wear spats, you wear a Victorian tie. uh, A Victorian dress correct, please. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, of course. I mean, you're very well... I do wear other clothes as well. There's a suit involved in the shirt. (laughs) I hope so. I mean, uh, uh, but you're a very well-turned-out a gentleman uh, who plays a nylon string guitar is a very softly spoken as you are now uh, with the with an ever so sexual deviance in the eyes. Would you would you say that's correct? I, I don't know. I mean, you're saying it, so um, you're better <laughs> describing me than me. I mean, I don't know what I look like because I'm yeah. I'm behind my eyeballs. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that, that I'm, and I'm you're saying introduced that... as musical genius and sex symbol. You're right, sex symbol. Who's going to sex symbol? And, and, that, and, and, that, and I that... always try and get them to say to say it as seriously as they can, as if it's like Radio Three or something. Yeah. Because the more serious they are, the more silly I'm going to look when I come on stage. Well, this is the thing: is that you never let that you never let that down. You never give it away, and that's what I like about it. Is you continue the through line, as as if you, uh, Earl Oaken, the onstage character, one hundred percent believes it in those words. Do you, <laughs> as Earl Oaken, as you're sitting eating tea and toast in the morning? I wish I wish I could be that Earl Oaken. Unfortunately, <laughs> no. I'm not. Oh. And if I see myself in the mirror before I shave, definitely not. <laughs> so, do you do you do you follow much um, new musical comedy? Do you do? You, are you a fan of musical comedy yourself, or when you when you relax at night, do you put on some jazz or put on some uh, Peggy, Peggy Lee? What I mean, how what do you listen to yourself? I used to travel with lots of travel tapes of my favorite records, yeah. and they tended to be number one grand opera. Right. Okay. So my favorite singers are Fyodor Shalyapin, maybe the greatest singer on record, and a gentleman called Enrico Caruso, yeah. and another bunch of people. These are all born in the 1870s and so forth. And um, I have 10,078, so a lot of them are from that era. So we're talking pre-microphone. These people sang into a horn. Yeah. And they still sounded better than anybody there. I mean, somebody like Pavarotti would have been a good local tenor, but nowhere, anywhere near the standard of the great tenors of that of that time. Right. Okay. Um, they're just amazing. The thing is, they make it sound normal and natural. Nowadays, it always sounds a bit sort of artificial. It doesn't sound. Well, you mean real? You mean it sounds? They sound trained. It sounds trained, yeah. I mean, of course, they were trained, but it must sound that way. Yes. It must sound, I mean, when Caruso opens his mouth, it's just, well, he, first of all, he had this amazing voice. But it, he makes it sound easy. Uh, he sings after the beat like jazz singers do. He uses portamento, which is how you get from one note to the other with a sort of sigh. I mean, it's just wonderful. And he doesn't sound like he's killing himself when he sings the top note. It all sounds just, as I say, it's, it's as natural for him as Alice Fitzgerald singing a blues, you know, it yeah. just comes. But, of course, these were the great songwriters. I mean, one of my biggest songwriting influences was a gentleman called, well, I also dressed like him, uh, called Giacomo Puccini. Uh, I mean, he still has hits today. I mean, Nessun Dorma was Puccini. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. <clears throat> so he's a wonderful songwriter, and um, you know, I listened to some of the tricks he got up to in the harmony department, and you know, that's. Have you ever written um, opera? Then have, is that something? no? I'm no. Good enough. Uh, I have written a musical. Oh, tell us about it, please. Um, it has 17 songs, and one of these days I'll meet somebody willing to put it on because, oh, this sounds terrible, but it's probably got some of the best songs I've written in a musical for the last 20, 30 years, um, and it's basically the sequel to Porgy and Bess. Oh, wow. And there are 17 songs in various styles because it goes from jazz to sort of semi-operatic, you know, the, during the more dramatic moments the the music changes so that's i've written that and i've also written a symphony like oh, nice. you do uh, yeah as you do yeah it's just something that you do on a sunday <laughs> afternoon yeah and i've been able to do that because about 10 15 years ago uh, somebody showed me this program called logic with that i taught myself to arrange <laughs> so so you're you're still recording and you're still you still writing but are you st- are you performing anywhere uh, well, um, I just sold out Ronnie Scott's. Well, that'll do. <laughs> and I then sold out something called the Elgar Room, if you know what that is. Yeah, I do, yeah. It, it's the room in the Royal Albert Hall. There's a picture of me taken that night, because I didn't realise they projected on the wall behind me a message which says, live from... Instead of saying live from the Elgar Room, it says live from the Royal Albert Hall. So I thought, oh, that's a useful picture. <laughs> <laughs> And then I do the odd comedy club. Not as many people seem to know me as they used to. Um, I, mean, I got into comedy by accident, really. I was hanging out at my favourite jazz club. I still go there occasionally, called the 606. On a Sunday, the chap who used to run it was a, a real lovey and used to write comedy sketches. And if you forgot, you'd turn up on a Sunday only to be faced with these terrible, terrible, toe-curlingly embarrassing, non-funny sketches that you had to sit through. And you wanted to sink through the floor with embarrassment, you know? And suddenly two young guys turned up and said to us, oh, we've got this new comedy and we've heard that jazz musicians have got a certain sense of humor. We'd like to try something on you. I mean, and they were amazed at the enthusiasm that they were met with. Like, yes, yes, please do it now. Because what we were really doing was to stop the guy doing his normal schedule that night. And they went on stage and they were hilarious. It was a very black sketch about terrorists taking over London Airport and putting people in microwave ovens. <laughs> and it was Nigel Planer and Peter Richardson. Right. Wow. I think they call themselves the Outer Limits, if that's not. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Anyway, they said, oh, we can't find any comedians. And I said, oh, I do a bit of comedy. Because, you know, obviously at that time, all the comedians were sort of, I won't say my mother-in-law's fat, but, you know, there was all yeah. that sort of stuff. And I said, no, no, it's not like that. Oh, please come along. Yeah, da, 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 we can't. Can you imagine? There are no comedians. So I went along to Raymond's Review Bar and took part in something called the Comic Strip. And the other people were French and Saunders, Rick Mail and Adrian Edmondson, etc., etc. And um, we had an audience of six. Wow. Nobody believes this, but I went down best. 
I've been doing it for 10 years, remember? Yeah. I've been doing it in folk clubs, so I had, yeah, you know, jeans. stage presence. I knew what I was doing. Yeah. Uh, I did a week with them, and then one night somebody turned up from Granada TV, and we all went up to Granada Land to do a sort of trial program, which would have been a sort of 1980s, that was the week that was. And everybody got signed up for TV except me. Be because because they, all they wanted was sketches and stand-up. They did not want music. Wow. And uh, it's been like that ever since. I, I mean, the number of musical comedians you see on TV, you can count maybe on one hand. Well, this is, uh, I mean, we chatted about this before the interview. If you go look at uh, Live at the Apollo, they just do not use musical comedians. I, think I believe they've actually got a rule saying you, they will only use stand-up. Well, they had Nick Helm on in one of the later seasons, but that was only because he's a, a force of nature. Um, but yeah, in, and even if you can do a set of stand-up without music, if you're seen as a musical comedian, they don't want to have you on, which I, I think is bonkers because on most stand-up comedy bills I've ever played on, they always, no, what, they, they what, always put what the I've musical... Heard is it's not pure comedy. And as far as I'm concerned, there's only one test for comedy. Did the audience laugh? Yes, if they did, it's comedy. If they didn't, it's really tragedy. Yeah. It's that's it. If people are laughing, then it's comedy. You know. Yeah. So does that mean that Charles Chaplin, who didn't wasn't a stand-up, doesn't mean he wasn't a comedian? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's just nonsense. But that's the way things are. And it, I mean, ever since that time, mm. I can't think of any program on TV that featured musical comedians. Well, Victoria Wood, maybe. Yeah, Victoria Wood, and I thought. I think she was at her best when she was writing serious drama. She was good at that. Right. But I just found her humour a bit sort of obvious. And do you like? Do you watch a lot of the modern, uh, modern comics like the young? You know, like you you see now on TV. There's twenty. I hear it on the radio at night mm -hmm. on Radio Four Extra. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I've been um, on that a few times. Mm. And it's all right. Some of it. Um, yeah. uh, two of my favourite comedians will be in my show when I'm on my 75th birthday and they are Stuart Lee and Milton Jones but they're hardly newcomers now yeah they're that's true um, you know I I tend to listen more to music than, than comedy as I said I, I've always been see there are two sorts of musical comedians there are stand-ups who have a guitar and occasionally write wrong words for a pop song and that's what they do occasionally right. it's just and then there are people who are basically musicians who then add a bit of comedy. So it's like either side of the same coin. Mm. I'm the second sort. Yeah. And I can easily do a show with no comedy. Mm. But I don't think I could do a stand-up. It's not what I am. I'm of the same ilk there, Earl, 100%. I, 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 I can do musical direction i can stand on stage and i can play i could play hours and hours and hours of set but um but but i i wouldn't like to just go up there with a mic i'm i'm not i'm not a phil nickel so you know now let this let's we're, we, we're gonna have to wind up here you're trying to get rid of me eh? I no, know. No, I, I, no, I, what i was doing is i didn't want to cut you off I, we'd like you to sing a song or perform for us if that's possible because that's something that we we do on this podcast. I don't think I can do that here. Um, of course, the 
quality is a bit dodgy. Um, You're better off just seeing me on YouTube. Okay. Um, I've got, if you just type in Earl Oaken, amazingly, a song comes up of me doing the song I actually opened my set with, which is called My Room. Okay. Which, in a sense, I think I actually wrote it because people kept talking about mango, mango, mango all the time. Yeah. And, I thought, and then they, then the BBC, BBC told me, well, we'd love to have you, but you only know one song. Right. And they only <laughs> keep asking me to do the same song. Yeah, right. Um, <clears throat> so I stopped doing mango and wrote my room to take its place. And now that <laughs> everybody now wants me to do my room and plus a song called Bessie. Right. So those are the ones. Well, the one called my room i performed about 15 years ago in australia on a tv show which is hosted by ex-rugby players and that has now been seen by 1.2 million people apparently wow unless it's the same person who kept keeps going back i don't know it's not yeah. me um so you can see me doing my typical comedy there well i'll tell you what we'll do earl is we're gonna we'll put it on the podcast here okay right. well uh Hello, ladies. <laughs> hmm. If you come into my room, put a smile on your lips. Come to my room. Kind of loosen up your hips Come to my room, baby We're gonna have some fun If you come into my room You'll hear that closing door once you're in Feel those clothes slip to the floor Come to my room, baby We're gonna have some fun Cause I'll put you under my spell Charm you out of your shell Let's see how everything fits <laughs> Then I'll do everything you want And give you the shivering bits Come to my room Make no plans to get away Once you're in my room You'll want to stay there every day Come to my room, baby We're gonna have some fun We're giving all the clap, by the way It's 
I'm feeling horny now. <laughs> done so much and met so many people through your life is is there a is there something that you wish that you had done that you uh that you haven't done yet well there's two things um and it's actually one of them i was not it was not my choice but uh, i should as i said before have forgotten the degree and being around so that Dick James could make me famous, that's one regret. And the other thing I haven't told you is uh, one of my songs was going to be recorded by one of the most important singers of the whole of recorded history. And I went backstage to the London Palladium and met him in his dressing room after the show. And his name was Bing Crosby. Wow. And we had a chat and I asked him about Big Spider Becker and all his early days, which he got excited about because people usually only ask him about his films and Bob Hope and everything. And then he went off and he was going to be singing a song which I recorded my help myself since called um, I Belong. And then he went, he finished the season at the Palladium with Rosemary Clooney who apparently outdrunk everybody, but that's another story. <laughs> um, and he uh, then went to Spain to play some golf, and after one of the matches, went back to the 19th hole and dropped dead on the way of a oh. heart attack. I was, you know, quite offended by that. I thought if he didn't like the song, he could have like, you know, have you got another one? But it made it so definite. You know? <laughs> well, thank you very much, Earl Oaken. That is, it's such a pleasure to speak to you. I wish we had Likewise. more time. I have a feeling that we can speak to you all night. Um, maybe we'll have you back on sometime in the very near future. Oh, I'll be delighted to. It's been fun. Oh, I've got a website. So if people want to find out what I'm doing, hopefully I'm going to use this 75th birthday as a sort of, uh, 
uh, coat hanger to get a massive tour out of. Um, I've had a, I know there's a couple in Yorkshire that have come in for May, so I'll see what I can do. Fabulous. But it's all, but the gig list is on Earl Oaken, one word, no dots, E A R L O K I N dot net. Yeah. Great. Earl, thank you so. Honestly, I'd I'd love to hear that musical one day as well. Oh well, just if you email me, you've got my email address. Yeah. Um, I'll send you some of the tracks. Oh well, really? I'd love to. Honestly, that would be amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks, That'd Earl. Be wonderful. That's Earl Oaken, everybody. Thank you so much, Earl. Thanks, Earl. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye, adios, farewell. You'll be glad to hear that we think that your interview went well. But we have other things to get on with now, so you're going to have to go. I'm sure our paths will cross again, but whoever really knows. It's been fun, it's been musical, it's been comical at times. But now we have to leave you, so goodbye. Goodbye. The phenomenal Earl Oak in there. I mean, what a man. Did it over the phone. I know, he didn't, didn't have the equipment, so he, he did it over the phone instead. And I, Imagine yeah. with an old dial phone on the end of it. It does, it does, yeah. It felt a bit like, that. no, he, he was amazing. You are, we love you, Earl. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Um, now, if you would like to see us, it, uh, today is Wednesday. That's when the, uh, the podcast goes out. Now, if you are listening on the Wednesday and you'd like to see myself and Phil, Phil and I, um, together in a show we do the cray cray cabaret at um the comedy store at the comedy store so it's the second wednesday of every month please do come on down um you can get your tickets on the door you can get them online and uh, yeah we hope to actually see you in person that'd be amazing you'll see david tim's the biggest band and i host it and we have lots of great guests if you'd like to see more or hear more of the musical genius and sex symbol that is earl oaken why not visit him at earloken.net Keep on sending us in your comedy songs for the Songs in the Key of Laugh comedy song competition. Send them in to songsinthekeyoflaugh at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support our podcast financially, join us at patreon.com forward slash songsinthekeyoflaugh. Or coffee.com forward slash songsinthekeyoflaugh. We will see you next week for more of the same. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Phil. I'm David. Goodbye. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.